What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Mackenzie Sigalos is a technology reporter based out of CNBC San Francisco Bureau with a focus on Bitcoin, cybersecurity, financial technology, and gaming. In this conversation, we discuss her reporting process, mainstream media bias, her personal Bitcoin journey, Bitcoin mining, news story ideas, and how Bitcoiners can help. I really enjoyed this conversation with Mackenzie, and I hope you do as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. First up is Remote. When you use Remote, you can employ people in other countries legally and easily. They take care of international payroll, employee benefits, tax headaches, and all the paperwork for local compliance. Forget about location and hire the best person for every open role using Remote. Remote's platform is easy to use for full-time employees, contractors, and your HR team. Whether you're a major corporation or a small startup, Remote has the tools and resources to help you at a price you can afford. Even better, listeners to this podcast get a special deal. Sign up for Remote today and receive 50% off your first employee for the first three months. You can check out remote.com slash POMP and enter promo code POMP to get started. If you hire employees around the world, you must be using Remote. They're simply the best. Remote.com slash POMP and enter promo code POMP to get started today. Next up is BlockFi. BlockFi provides financial products for crypto investors. I'm a user and an investor in the business. Big, big fan. I think you will be too. Those products today include a high yield interest account, a US dollar loan product against your crypto collateral, and a no fee cryptocurrency trading product. But my favorite product by far is the Bitcoin Rewards credit card. I now have my credit card and it is awesome. There's a really fat, heavy card It's got a nice Bitcoin logo on it, and there's just something about every time I sweat my credit card knowing that I'm earning Bitcoin back. That's right. You get 1.5% Bitcoin back on every single transaction. No cash back, no airline miles, Bitcoin back. To start earning today, go to BlockFi.com slash POMP and sign up for an account and get on the credit card wait list. BlockFi.com slash POMP. Go sign up for an account and then get on that credit card wait list. Last but not least are my friends over at Choice. Choice is rebuilding the way you approach retirement, which starts with making it simple to include Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies in your savings. More than 20,000 Bitcoiners, myself included, yep, I've got a Choice account. They've already signed up to start investing. Whether we are talking about crypto or stocks, Choice lets you trade real Bitcoin and Amazon in the same place, all without paying a dime in capital gains taxes. And if you want to hold your own keys all the way to the moon, you can do that too. Either way, Choice is on a mission to give you full control over your retirement savings. So head on over to retirewithchoice.com slash POMP. Again, that's retirewithchoice.com slash POMP and sign up for an account today. And one more thing, you know how I feel about this, but if you have a pro that manages your money, don't take any of their BS. Choice has tools for them too. Take back control today and visit retirewithchoice.com slash POMP. All right, let's get this episode with Mackenzie. I hope you guys enjoy this one. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys. Bang, bang. I've got Mackenzie here. Thanks so much for doing this. Thanks for having me. 
All right, let's just jump in. Why is CNBC now putting you on the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency beat? Like what is going on in the interest of kind of the media in terms of what's going on in this industry? I mean, for so long, the markets team has covered Bitcoin. And so it's been very focused on price moves and and what's going on on that side of it. But I'm joining, I joined the tech team. So I cover business and tech, and that's my way into crypto. And it speaks to the fact that CNBC is interested not just in the price moves, but we're kind of getting into the weeds of what's going on. And like to the credit of my editors, they care and they will let me go deep on things that normally we wouldn't. So what's the difference between the markets team and the tech team, just for people to understand? Yeah. So the markets team is very much focused on like day of price moves, why mm-hmm. things are happening. And then with the tech team, I, you know, Friday night, I was up till 1 a.m. writing a piece on Taproot. Now, usually that would be a hard sell, uh, but I have editors that are very like plugged into what's going on. And personally, I knew it was an important thing to write about. Did I think that it would really hit? No, but it was a number one story on CNBC.com this weekend. Really? Yeah. And I think that that speaks to the fact that like, we're we're finding an audience we didn't even realize was there, mm-hmm. uh, which has been fascinating. I, same thing this week. I was writing about uh, the mining migration out of China and where these miners are headed. Number one story on CNBC.com. And this is not a credit to me and my, my reporting or writing. It's a credit to the fact that our audience is really smart and they really care about things beyond like, oh, there was this percentage drop today. Mm-hmm. And so it feels like uh, maybe there's becoming more sophisticated, like more macro analysis of actual Bitcoin, the market, the underlying fundamentals and, and some of the players in the market rather than just price. Is that kind of a fair way to look at it? Yeah, yeah. All right, why do they pick you? Like what, <laughs> what is your uh, journey with Bitcoin or yeah. kind of like why, why are you interested in this or why were they interested in you covering it? Yeah, so I've uh, spent five, Five years with CNBC. Before that, I was with CNN in Hong Kong and New York. In terms of my journey with crypto, it started when I was in Hong Kong, actually. So it was right around the time of the Mt. Gox hack. And so at dinner, talking to people about what happened and, and people didn't really have a lot of skin in the game. So it mm-hmm. wasn't that they felt like such a huge loss, but it just was this talking point. And then a couple years ago, I, I spoke to a lot of miners in Venezuela who had turned to you know that practice just because of everything that was going on with the national currency. And um, and so I started to get into it from that perspective. And then, I mean, between 2017 and 2020, it, it kind of dropped off our radar a bit. And and then it and then it came back to the forefront. I was reporting a lot on it in December and this role opened up with the tech team. And 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 it was kind of is that what was kind of cool is that the job wasn't like a crypto reporter. The job was we want a tech reporter and we want somebody who has a vision for what this role could be. Mm-hmm. And I just, I think this world is fascinating. And I think there's so much to unpack and that that's kind of how I ended up in this chair. So let's walk through your process. So um, maybe we'll start with like a Taproot type story, right? Mm-hmm. So for those that don't know, Taproot is a uh, software upgrade uh, for Bitcoin. Um, it can be quite technical. Uh, it can also um, have various viewpoints in terms of like, once this actually is accepted, uh, what are the impact gonna be to Bitcoin? What's the market gonna react to it? Uh, and then there's also like a process type situation where what is the process from it being more proposed to actually being uh, accepted and, and used? And so like, that's a lot of complexity. What do you do uh, in writing that story to kind of gather the information uh, so people kind of understand like the work that goes into these actual articles? So what I have found is that so many members of the crypto community of like the, you know, Bitcoin believers specifically have been incredibly helpful and welcoming. (laughs) 
And and so my process is I want to speak to as many people as possible. Those who like understand the mechanics of this, those who are trading it, people who are mining Bitcoin, people who know it from all angles, because I have so much to learn. And I mm-hmm. finally feel like I'm getting to the place where I know what I don't know mm-hmm. um, so that I at least know the players and the people that I need to speak to. So it's just like pounding the phones and like. I, if the, that piece that I said that I finished Friday at 1 a.m., I was talking to somebody at midnight who was going through the final mechanics of it with me. I was having another conversation for another piece Sunday night. And that's that's the big thing, just mm-hmm. speaking to the practitioners who understand it best. And then from there, we try to take things that are very technical because, as you said, this upgrade that just locked is very technical what's happening. And so trying to turn that into conversational language that translates to a mainstream audience is not an easy thing. It's the work of a wizard. <laughs> no, I'm like I still have so I have so much that I need to do to get better at it. But that's that's the second stage of the process, just like breaking it down in in layman's terms and 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 also making people care, right? Like, mm-hmm. so this is not just something that's the Bitcoin community is interested mm-hmm. in. Like, this is something that it can be hugely impactful, and we can talk about the reasons why or not. Um, but but yeah, that's that's what I typically do. And so let's say you go and you talk to a bunch of market participants and it's taproot, right? And you're like, hey, what is this? Why is it important? How does it work? What's the process? Uh, what do you think the potential impact is going to be? All that kind of stuff. You gather all this information. Uh, I'm assuming you go and you actually like put together a draft of what you want to write. And then what's the process from like your work through the editing process till mm-hmm. it actually gets published, right? How much yeah. of that is reliant on like the work that you've done versus there's editors or other folks at CNBC uh, that are into Bitcoin or interested in it or whatever. And like, what what do they do with the work before it actually gets published? Yeah. So I have an editor who I file my story to and he's wonderful. Like, as I was saying earlier, he's the kind of person who is going to walk the path with me. If I say that we need to go and file the story on Taproot, this upgrade that not a lot of other people covered outside of the Bitcoin mm-hmm. world. He hears me. Um, and that's nice because I've I mean, I've worked in newsrooms around the world and that doesn't always happen. Um, and then we saw that it worked. There was an audience for it. People were reading it. But the process is I fi- like I give him my story. I file my story and in, in journalistic speak. And uh, that just means send it to him. Yeah. <laughs> right, just making sure. And then he goes through and he's and, 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 and he he's skeptical of things in a good way. Like of any he's not skeptical necessarily of the crypto world, but of everything that I write. Mm-hmm. And so he will kind of go back and forth with me if there are things that don't quite resonate or if I don't have enough, you know, on both sides of the argument. We get that in there. He makes language edits and then we publish like it's a pretty short timeline from from when I fi- file to when it actually is live on the site. And the um, kind of skeptical nature of it is more of like editing for language and concepts and things like that, uh, or it's for like the validity of what the market participants the market participants are saying. And, and my question really is more around, um, I think a lot of folks, there's been this like distrust of the mainstream media when they cover this, because mainly it's been uh, price coverage, right? Mm-hmm. Which is has kind of a specific slant. Uh, two is, it's usually people who like, Maybe they got assigned to do it, but they're not really like into it. They're not interested. So naturally, just the questions they get asked or the topics they cover uh, definitely aren't taproot, right? For example, like it's like the more kind of surface stuff. Uh, and then the third thing is um, there's been times where like people will like do an interview or whatever. And then the thing that gets published is like completely opposite, right? And it feels like right now, uh, fingers crossed, right? Like the process that you guys are implementing at CNBC is really trying to take like, hey, here's what the people on the ground are saying, whether they're right or wrong, this is what they're saying. And then like you said, bring it into more conversational language. And I think what's so fascinating is it's not being written for the Bitcoin community. 
being written for the everyday investor who reads CNBC.com. Mm-hmm. And there's almost this like melding of worlds and you and this editor are kind of sitting in the middle trying to like figure out like, how do you do that? Is that like a fair way to look at it? Yeah. And I think, I mean, you said it, there is this um, combative relationship between mainstream media and between the crypto community. And I hate that. And I want to understand why, you know, so many people think that the media in general is propagating FUD, because that's definitely not my intention. And so everything that I do, every story that I pitch, every time I'm writing something that I want to I want to battle that stereotype and make sure that, like, it's not at all showing up in in what I write and what I report. Not that I need to be a cheerleader for either side. I just like want to give a very balanced take Mm -hmm. on what's going on. And so uh, I'm trying to think of your original question. I kind of uh, latched onto the mainstream media side of it. It's true, though, right? I mean, in the sense, uh, I think that um, it's a natural human reaction. If you get burnt once or twice, what do people do? They like circle the wagons, right? And they literally are like, we're ready for war. (laughs) And like Bitcoiners are very uh, uh, well uh, versed in the memeing and the attacking and like kind of all this stuff. But all of a sudden, uh, in some crazy way, like El Salvador is a great example, when somebody says, hey, we see a world that you guys see, we, we actually uh, have a philosophical alignment, or in your case, uh, trying to take an unbiased approach, but saying like, I, I don't wanna be combative, I actually want to be, uh, I wanna understand, I wanna be able to kind of uh, share the views that you guys have. Uh, it almost is like Bitcoiners didn't get behind it. It becomes a tailwind rather than like a headwind in some yeah. way. I've just been shocked at the generosity of time and expertise. Like people are tweeting me back like, you know, at 2 a.m. when I have a story due the next day and they're weighing in with their thoughts. And 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 these are people who I've sometimes I've never met before. Other people mm-hmm. have been on the phone with I met some who I've met at the Bitcoin conference. And that's I mean, to have been able to source up this quickly uh, and to have people really be so welcoming and encouraging of of. And it's it's not to like it's not to, you know, push their side of the argument necessarily. It's really just to help me get inside inside the mechanics of how these things work. Mm -hmm. I've appreciated that. And going back to something else you said, I was looking at this report and it was out. The research group, I think, is called Clover. Mm -hmm. And they were looking at uh, mainstream media coverage of the crypto world from 2013 to 2018. And there are some like I, I understand why, as you said, like some from the crypto community feel burned, like one of the, you know, report. Uh, one of the things cited in the report is the fact that you saw this uptick in coverage always when there was a big sell-off. And so, you know, that naturally kind of skews to negative coverage. I will say CNBC, like our ranking was was balanced on the positive and negative coverage, which is great. And it's also a big part of why I'm there and and doing this job with CNBC. Uh, but I get it. I, I get why there are hurt, not not I don't not hurt feelings, but why there's skepticism of 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 certain media outlets. What's the process for getting the other side? So like as much as uh, people want to say Bitcoin is amazing, it's inevitable, (laughs) it's whatever, right? And I'm more bullish than most. Yeah. uh, You got to, in your role, talk to the people who completely disagree. Yeah. And so what's the process in terms of getting like the bearish argument or the counterpoint to what kind of comes out of the Bitcoin community? Is it the same thing, just with different types of people? Exactly. Like I'm talking to a lot of people on Wall Street and and, 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 uh, while the mindset there is shifting, with a lot, you know, with several people, it isn't shifting. And so I just, I, I want to hear it from both sides. I want the best storytellers and, and argument makers to kind of debate it. And I, and I go back and forth. Like, so when I'm doing interviews, I don't do all from one side and then the other. It's like, I'm constantly ping ponging between the two so that I can put the best arguments from one side to the other side mm-hmm. and vice versa, just so that I can fully get in it. And, and like I said, 
I have so much to learn still. Uh, I'm, I'm nowhere near where I need to be. Um, that's what you'll learn in Bitcoin. Nobody knows. <laughs> nobody's done learning. Like that's part of the beauty of it is, is the multidisciplinary like intersection, right? And so just nobody's yeah. done learning, which is uh, exciting, but also yeah. like can feel overwhelming at times of like, oh my God, I still have so much to learn. And like every spare second, like I, because I like to go, I do distance running and I, I listen to podcasts. Like obviously I listen to you, Bitcoin Audible, like Guy Swan has taught me a bunch too, but like I'm just in every spare minute that I have, I'm trying to take it in by osmosis. <laughs> I'm laughing because you didn't mention the third best podcast in all of Bitcoin, which is uh, Peter McCormick's What Bitcoin Did. You just didn't mention it. He must not be very good. I mean, Peter's a great no, guy. No. I like I like Peter a lot, but hey, listen, if you don't have a good podcast, you don't have a good podcast, Peter. Like, come on, ca- catch up here a little bit. Uh, all right, let's talk about Bitcoin mining. Love you, Peter. Uh, uh, in terms of uh, the mining story that you did, you really were focused on kind of China and the hash rate shifting out of China. So yeah. you walk through like kind of what were some of the takeaways for you in that topic? So I was kind of informally talking to a lot of people when I was in Miami the first time around and every single person kept bringing up this like drain of 50 to 60 percent of the hash rate out of China and how people weren't talking enough about it. And so then I just started to get in the weeds of it. Uh, and and having lived in I lived in Hong Kong for three years with CNN, uh, spent a, you know, a lot of time going back and forth between uh, Beijing and, and Hong Kong. And so I was personally interested uh, mm-hmm. for, for different reasons. And. There, I mean, there are so many angles here. Like, yes, the destination side of it, like where are they going to go? Um, and, and that's important to me, not just from a, a, the standpoint of what does this mean for the, the U.S. and their, our mining infrastructure? Mm-hmm. Will we become more progressive in those policies? Will we move faster to build um, you know, the systems necessary to host those miners? But it's also very interesting to me in terms of like the climate debate around Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And it's something where I've been I've been wanting to do a piece for a while on this. And I think the new Cambridge data comes out next month. And so I cannot wait to sink my teeth into that. Mm. But where they go will really decide the the direction this argument takes, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and it's a toss up. Right. Because like miners leaving China is not a great thing necessarily. Like there's tons of hydropower in addition to tons of like coal mines, right? Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I don't know if it's a full net net, but like a full wash um, when you have them all exit, but where they go will decide what people say about Bitcoin's carbon footprint for the next decade, I think. Yeah. And I think part of what's so fascinating about China is so there are certain uh, Chinese provinces where it's almost 100% hydro, yeah, right? And right. it's like, actually, that should be the lighthouse on the uh, kind of uh, hill, if you will, in terms of what we want people to do is be 100% renewable. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, there's a lot of examples where that's not what we want people to do, and it's the coal. But the U.S., I think, on a net basis, uh, you know, kind of side by side of China, is a more green grid. Mm-hmm. But to your point, you could just go do a coal mine in the United States, and that's not much better, right? And it's actually a negative if you went from renewable in China and to a non-renewable in the United States. So there's exactly. nuance here, not just oh, switch countries and it solves all the problems. Yeah, and then Kazakhstan, like it's a next door neighbor to China. A cool climate. Uh, they're very lax on their building policies, mm-hmm. and it's coal powered. So I mean, I'm. I mean, I am fascinated to see where they go. I think for the time being, I was talking to Nick Carter about this too. The the, the hash rate will probably go offline there, right? And so the miners who are still mining are going to be a little bit richer. Um, and we might see special like like zones set up to absorb these miners, but. 
Yeah, well, and I think also in the United States, what's really fascinating is uh, you're getting some migration just in general. Uh, but it seems like the U.S. is much more innovative in finding uh, various energy sources. So, yeah. you know, oil and gas and kind of this flare gas capture. Yeah. Uh, there's Great American Mining, a couple other companies that are doing it. They seem to be really a U.S. based strategy uh, before it went anywhere else. But you could see very quickly, like, hey, where else do they have oil? Like, well, this could be it, you know, done in many, many different uh, regions very quickly. And so in some way, it feels like China served as um, uh, kind of a breeding ground and was a very big part of the mining hash rate for a while. That's now shifted and is changing rapidly. But also the types of energy is we're, we're getting more right. Flare gas capture wasn't a thing five years ago. I'm writing a story on that as we speak. Okay, all right, I'm trying, to, trying to get there. Talk, talk, talk about this. <laughs> well, I so do you know Steve Barber? Um, I do. Yeah. So basically, uh, I've been t- he's been teaching me about this world. Obviously, he runs a company that sets up uh, these different oil fields mm-hmm. with the you know, the mobile mining setups, and I think it's fascinating. And and uh, I just kind of want to break out that process of of what this means in terms of like the logistics of it, but also what does it mean in terms of you know capturing that otherwise stranded uh, natural gas is better than flaring it. So what are the like the environmental impacts? Like mm-hmm. what are the net positives of this? So that's something I'm interested in. And then also nuclear power, right? Like I was talking to the mayor of Miami yesterday, and he is very keen to absorb some of these uh, migrant miners who need a home. Uh, and, and he wants to channel that nuclear power. So I've got that story coming out now, or it might be live right now. My boss is looking at it. So, so he, um, there's two things there. So on the flare gas, yeah. what's fascinating to me about that argument is it's not just, oh, we're going to get the flare gas and we're going to use it to mine. We're actually reversing or preventing yeah. environmental damage, right. right? So instead of this being flared, it's being diverted. And so you get advantage for Bitcoin, but you also get protection of the environment, mm-hmm. which is like, you know, that's galaxy brain stuff for the critics because they they don't want to talk about the fact that you actually could be improving the situation, let alone uh, not making it worse. But then when you start talking to like the mayor, you get this weird world of like, it's kind of capitalism and private markets, but it's also kind of state-sponsored uh, support. Mm-hmm. And what I don't think people quite have understood yet is the states are probably going to become massive proponents of this stuff. Oh, right? yeah. I mean, Texas is very crypto-friendly and specifically trying to build up its mining infrastructure. Wyoming, uh, another destination Georgia, Kentucky. Have you seen what they did in Kentucky? Mm. Uh, they uh, they With the coal mines, right? They dropped taxes for miners and basically are trying to use taxes as an incentive for people to come there and mine. Mm-hmm. And what does it do? It not only brings economic development uh, in terms of like the the money that is mined and all that. It brings jobs, mm-hmm. right? It brings all sorts of educated people. Like there's a uh, industry associated with this. It's not just, hey, we came, we showed up, you know, we put some uh, computers in the wall and like we left. And so it just feels like um, it's easy to point fingers and yell about the environmental impact. It's easy to yell about like the country uh, distribution. But when you actually unpack it, like mining actually may be pretty good. Like there's a strong argument that Bitcoin mining is the greatest incentive of renewable power yeah. uh, kind of R&D right now. Yeah. And people I, don't like that, but I, I think that's true. No, and I've, I've talked to a lot of people about that. And, it, and the, 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 the like the casting shade on that is always like the issue of like intermittent energy use. And so you ultimately it is more profitable to be mining 24 seven than it is just during daylight hours or, you know, so the, the issue of like storing it, um, if, if they could figure that out. <laughs> well, and, 
Longer story yeah. for sure, but uh, the idea of Bitcoin being a battery, right, becomes yeah, like right. this whole thing where a, a bunch of people, um, you know, myself included, who are like, look, you're essentially storing energy in Bitcoin if you have 24-7 persistent mm-hmm. demand for that energy. Um, and so I guess that then brings up Tesla. Like, what are your thoughts there? And Or uh, Tesla and Elon in general. A uh, bunch of tweets and stuff. Have you done yeah. any work there or, or kind of formulate any thoughts around are they going to eventually get into mining? Is the concern legitimate? Is he just having fun on the internet? Like what, what are you kind of all your thoughts? Yeah. So, I mean, I've had a couple different conversations with people about this. And so like one argument is that, uh, he, he really understands this world. He understands the nuances of mining. So the reason that he would say something that is a very like narrow view of this argument is because he's laying the groundwork for something that he's going to release, like whether that's a new battery or I don't, I don't know what he's going to do, but like, maybe it's like, you know, foaming the runways for something that's coming down the pike mm-hmm. or maybe shareholders were just like, you need to <laughs> button it up and, and uh, walk it back a bit. And, and of course, like since then he's kind of reversed course. He said, if mining becomes what 50% more, mm-hmm. whatever the language was around that 50% renewable and, yeah. and it could be proven that yes. he would basically start accepting Bitcoin again. Yeah. To, to buy at least one model of uh, Tesla's vehicles. So, I don't know exactly where I fall on this, uh, on this. He didn't, he didn't sell any Bitcoin. <laughs> So right. how big of a concern is it really, right? right. It's kind of the view. I actually think that net net he's going to end up being a um a positive impact on the industry. It's just, you know, a little chaos along the way. Uh, <laughs> a lot of chaos along the way. Uh what other ideas are you interested in for stories, right? So people who are listening, a bunch of bitcoiners, like what are some of the things that uh that you find fascinating or want to learn more about? Uh a couple of different things. So one is how real is it that countries could nationalize mining pools? Oh, interesting. So not just mining, but the actual mining pools themselves. Yeah. And and does that, I mean, what complications does it introduce? Does that introduce, introduce another layer of taxation we'd have to deal with? So that's like one thing I'm kind of into. Uh, policymakers, t- like, are they scared of stable coins? Like, what, what is that dynamic there? Depends I, what policymakers. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. So some of them love the idea. <laughs> And then I, my editor has wanted me to do a piece on just what is DeFi for so long. And then once I get past like the what is DeFi, like, you know, conversations that, you know, just listen to one of your podcasts about this, but kind of the, the, the Bitcoin ecosystem for DeFi and how that's changing and how Taproot might be, um, you know, changing. Uh, well, obviously it's, it's making changes to the smart contract. And what does that mean for, for uh, mm-hmm. the world of DeFi? My list goes on. Where, All right. What else? Let's go. <laughs> what, what other ideas do you have? Um, I want to get into Ethereum and the question of centralization. Did uh, you did you pause before you started talking about Ethereum? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Ethereum and, and what do you say in the question of? Uh, and the question of centralization. Um, Basically, is Ethereum decentralized or centralized? Yeah. Oh, you should definitely write about that. Okay. That I think that there will be plenty of people who listen to this who will have ideas on both sides. Okay. Like, it, I don't think I've read yet. Uh, maybe I'm wrong on this and somebody will correct me for sure if I'm wrong. I don't think yet I've read a piece that really gets at the heart of how do you measure it and then where are we today, where were we, mm-hmm. and where are we going, right? Because there's some element of like none of these systems are uh, static. And so like Bitcoin today is more decentralized than it used to be. It's definitely more decentralized than it was in 20, uh, 2009, right? And so, like, it's getting more and more decentralized. So it's not only, like, where are we, but I also think, like, the arc of progress or, or the uh, the direction of travel is important as well. Mm-hmm. I'll leave it for other people to comment as to what they think. <laughs> and then, 
I mean, there's so much more to do on mining in general. Uh, so mining's like a big focus of yours, it seems like. As of late, it is just okay. because of what's happening right now and just the, the the places that are trying to roll out the red carpet. What does this mean for like reshaping the energy grid in Texas, which right now is extremely problematic, right? I mean, with all the storms that happened earlier this year and, and there's it's been in the headlines again recently. And the last thing I have on my list, I mean, there are more things that I wanted to cover, but the idea of green coins. Um, green coin, like ESG Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah. Jesus, like, okay. I, a lot of people are not, th- just think it doesn't make sense. Um, and then there are like coins that have just been created with with that in mind. So Chia is on my, is on my radar. Okay. <laughs> what? Oh, what does that look? <laughs> e- ESG Bitcoin. Let's talk about it for a second. Okay. What are the arguments that you've heard? And then uh, I'll give you my my perspective. Okay, so I was talking to, and I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher the argument, the wonderful argument okay. that Fred Teal laid out. But uh, he was getting into the fact that kind of um, differentiating origin between those that have been you know ethically mined uh, from those that aren't is going to be probably participants in the market may say that they want it to be green, but do they want to pay more for it? No. And so that will ultimately end up being problematic, uneconomical, and then it won't, it won't mainstream. Basically he's arguing that ESG Bitcoin won't actually be a thing, even though people are saying that they want it to be a thing because they're not willing to actually pay an economic premium for it. And if you won't pay more for it, then it all falls apart. And it's just virtue signaling. That is my understanding of it. I don't want to misquote anybody. I interviewed him. He sat right in that seat. I'm positive. That, let's okay. say at least the, that's, that's the argument he told me. Yeah. Maybe he changed his mind. I don't think so. But that was the argument he told yeah. Which was different than the argument that Marathon, the, the company he now runs, uh, had taken 60 days before. So mm-hmm. it was interesting that they had changed their mind on this. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that people were not willing to pay more. They at one point thought people would be willing to pay more. So they kind of the curtain got revealed and they were like, wait a minute, this is just virtue signaling. We're not going to do it. Mm-hmm. What is the argument for it that you've heard? I, I mean, it just kind of goes back to the the question of the ethical side of mining and, and whether it's environmental footprint wanting to just counter that, even if it has, even if it does, if it comes at a premium, uh, I, I, I don't, I mean, like, let's, I haven't fully reported this out. Do I have the nuanced side of the counter argument? Not as much (laughs) as yet. All right. The stat that I heard recently, uh, I did not go verify the stat, but, uh, I'm going to take this person at the, at, uh, at their word. Uh, I saw them tweet it. Bitcoin's energy consumption is less than 2% of just the energy consumption needed to propagate the U.S. military industrial complex, Mm. which is the security system for the U.S. dollar compared to the security of the Bitcoin network. And so like, that's like an interesting framework. Doesn't have to be the only framework, but like, okay, that's a data point. Mm -hmm. When you then start to look at how much of that is green, (laughs) zero. <laughs> right? I don't know the real numbers, but like not a high percentage. Right. Uh, I, I don't know if you've ever seen like they'll, they'll say, uh, uh, look at the green, uh, energy consumption of the U S dollar and they'll show like the battleships and like the, <laughs> the, uh, fighter jets. Um, but I do think that there's this argument of like, it makes sense for people to, in an elementary analysis say, Oh, it should be clean. It should be renewable. It should be whatever. But I think that Bitcoin has this way of exposing these topics and really separating them from a uh, what should happen from like a social uh, standpoint, what, what's politically correct mm-hmm. from a pure economic. And I think that the beauty of Bitcoin is that it's an economic incentive machine. And forget what the social consensus is. People are going to do what the cheapest thing in terms of production of Bitcoin because that's where, how they make the most money. Mm-hmm. And it's economically advantageous to go get renewable energy because it's way more profitable for you. It is. I mean, just look at the numbers of like the average cost of renewables versus it's not even close. So like 
market forces are going to force everyone to become renewable. Yeah. Regardless of any regulation, policies, like any of this other stuff. By the way, same thing with cars. Like, it's going to happen. Why? Because people are going to want the electric vehicles. But what you start to understand is like, the people who are calling for ESG, Bitcoin, aren't the ones who are actually doing anything. Like, they're not Mm -hmm. building the mining facilities. They're not doing any of the actual work. They're just the ones who are kind of nitpicking and saying, oh, I don't want this because it's not ESG compliant, or I have a mandate from somewhere else to invest capital based on that. But I always try to separate out like, but just economic machine is going to force everyone to become renewable. And so like, this is a mute point to begin with, but also by the way, you're not willing to pay more. So is it really more valuable to have ESG Bitcoin versus not, which I think is Fred Thiel's whole argument of just the economic incentive kind of exposes who's real and who's not. Mm Mm-hmm. Fair? Yeah, fair. All right. What other stories? Anything else? <laughs> I feel like there's so many things I, I know. should be asking you right now. I know. Come on. <laughs> uh, oh. What's the craziest thing that you've thought about writing about? Like when it comes to Bitcoin, crypto, et cetera. The thing that you're like, yeah, I don't know if I could like actually learn well, about it or if people would talk to me about it or whatever. Well, this is, I mean, and it kind of goes to a podcast that you already put out there, but I really think... My Taproot article on Saturday initially had like Ethereum in the headline and and kind of talking about that dynamic of, um, you, you know, with Bitcoin adding more functionality to, a, to its smart contracts. What does that mean in terms of the DeFi space? Like, does Bitcoin become more of a player over Ethereum, even though Ethereum has long kind of dominated the world of DeFi and people want to build dApps on top of that infrastructure? And so... I don't understand everything well enough to, oh, I, I mean, I want to learn more, but I am afraid to touch that argument myself. You should do it only because uh, if you fear going and talking about a topic, that's probably where you're going to learn the most. <laughs> and what I think, if I was in your seat, right, you do whatever you want. Go talk to a bunch of the folks in what is now called DeFi, which is always interesting because Bitcoin is the largest DeFi product, but that's a whole nother thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then go see where they're building. Some of them, or many of them are building on Ethereum, right? Mm-hmm. There's certain functionality that it provides, throughput, fees, whatever that make that attractive. Now there's other smart contract platforms that people are starting to build on. Go talk to them. And then talk to the Bitcoin DeFi or layer two you know, Bitcoin folks. And my guess is that, uh, and this is controversial, they actually all agree on more than you would expect but the key pieces of difference make the picture very, very clear. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, I don't know, 70% of things they all agree on, which is like, I always joke. I'm like, do we all want something that's a decentralized financial system? Like every single one of those groups raising hands, like, yeah, we want that. Okay. Well, so where's the disagreement? How do we get there? Mm-hmm. Where is it built? And then all the nuances, you know, they're like, okay, well we need like cheap fees and high throughput. Okay. We all agree on that. Like, okay, where does that get built? not agreement (laughs) why and then the fundamental differences are like really exposed and what i think is so fascinating is it's also what's the timeline that people actually want this to be available yeah so if you have a 10-year time horizon versus 100 versus one well there's different technical things that end up getting built based on if it needs to be ready in one year to swallow the legacy financial system versus 100 years and i think that we always uh the elementary analysis is just like static view of the world but it's more the directional progress more so than like the static view right mm-hmm. in terms of coverage what do you think we're missing and i and when oh, i say man, we you put me on the spot all right <laughs> no but i want to get just sort of laughing he's like damn she got him <laughs> but i want to get better and i also want to like repair this like i, I mean, we were talking about i think earlier. there's three things yeah okay you ready <laughs> you're ready <laughs> there's a certain portion of the market 
that uh, gets covered, not because of merit, but because of uh, the speculative hype and bubble. I'm torn on how a CNBC or somebody like that uh, thinks about it because part of it is it will be consumed by some portion of the population as having merit because CNBC talks about it. At the same time, what they're really covering, if you look at like the Dogecoin uh, stuff, mm. they're not so much talking about the asset. What they're doing is they're talking about the actions of the investors around the asset. Yeah. So they're reporting on like, look at this thing that is new and, and different and whatever. But then the consumption is like, oh, Dogecoin is just an equivalent to Bitcoin. Like, okay, that's probably not what you want people to take away from the story, right? So like, I think there's that element of it, which just like, uh, I'm glad, I'm, I'm actually uh, very glad that I'm not in the seat that has to make those calls because I think that's like a very complex issue. And there might not even be a right answer. Um, but that clearing that up would be like a huge boost because then it just says like, oh, okay, checks off the box of like, they understand where value is accruing and like, and like merit versus things that uh, are reporting on like the actions of the community, right? And so separating that, I think is important. Mm-hmm. Second thing is uh, there's lots and lots of coverage of the price of the tokens. There's actually a lack of coverage on the companies that are building in the space. So crypto is weird because everyone always thinks of the tokens, the coins, there's a daily price and the, and the volatility, all this stuff. Many of the companies are actually more important than the individual tokens and things like that. And so it almost seems like the boring part of the industry, but I think that like those businesses end up empowering so much of this. Um, and so like how you do it, who, which ones, all, all that's up for debate, but like the, the equity side I think is really important. And then the third thing is like, you're already doing this, uh, but if we had this conversation six months ago, CNBC and nobody else was doing it. Bitcoin is going to end up being one of the, if not the most valuable asset in the world. It is global in nature. Nobody in El Salvador cares about 95% of the news in the United States. A lot of people in El Salvador care about Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. That's El Salvador. Great. Go country by country around the world. Bitcoin is probably one of the most common shared topics across the world because it defies generations. It defies um, cultures. It defies language. Like it's just this global asset. And so I'm shocked that platforms are just like, we're going to go all in and we're going to cover this in great depth. Like the, the taproot article, I think was when I was like, Oh, wait a second, this is different. Like that would not have happened six months ago, 12 months ago. And so I think that like, you're already seeing it. Like it's the number one article. Like, <laughs> Go do more of that, right? And and by the way, like it doesn't have to be a positive article. Like it could be, hey, Bitcoiners have gone crazy and like they're doing something that's like stupid. Here's the argument as to why it's stupid. Okay, sure. But it's just a topic that is going to continue to be the number one topic on these websites because it's pulling from a, a such a global basis. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the part that people like haven't figured out yet. I don't know. This is my no, idea. Very helpful. And that's the thing. Like I really, I, so many of these ideas come from like informal conversations that I'm having where I'm reporting out one story. And then I realize that's the wrong story to be writing. Like mm. there's something else that's happening that really just needs some air um, that needs to be put in print. And, and uh, I mean, in terms of like my next steps, like as I build out this beat, like I just want to be speaking to as many people as possible. All right, so that, that was going to be my last question before the rapid fires. How do Bitcoiners, People in the crypto community, folks who are who are uh, critics as well. Yeah, how do they help you? Like, like, what's the best way for them to help you 
get better at doing this? DM me on Twitter at okay. Kenzie Segalos. I, okay. I really welcome uh, conversations, advice, like any thoughts. DMs are open. Just have yeah. them DM you and DM with whatever their like perspective is on various topics. Or, yeah. Or, Stories that should be like told that aren't being told. If they just want to like send me their number and we can have a phone call. Like I'm, I'm very open. Okay. That's a very dangerous thing to say in this world because people are going to send you memes. They're going to send you their phone number. They're going to send you all kinds of stuff. Well, okay. should I, is that a mistake? No, man, it's fine. Whatever. We'll see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> Not my fault if uh, you get weird things. Uh, please, people, don't be weird. Um, all right. So just DM you t- uh, story ideas, but also things that they see you tweeting about or whatever. If they have perspectives on it, they can just DM you. You read them all. Yeah. All good. Okay. Uh, three questions before we f- wrap up. Every journalist has a great answer to this. What's the most important book you've ever read? Oh, <laughs> uh, God, that is such a hard question. I know. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like I should be giving a nonfiction book, but I always think of The Sun Also Rises in this one line where it's just like you, you can't get away from yourself by going elsewhere, essentially. Um, and it's just like it, it rings true. I think that people try to find themselves outside of um, the, the the seat that they're in and wherever you go, there you are. And so I think that being really honest with yourself about what you're doing, your priorities and how you approach life is, is pretty key. What, what is the name of the book? The sun also rises. The sun also rises. Ernest okay. Hemingway. Ah, yeah. I, um, journalist who also wrote novels. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> er, Ernest Hemingway. Uh, I always, uh, when I hear Ernest Hemingway, I always think of which, I don't know why I do this Hunter S Thompson. <laughs> 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 two different people but like for some reason i don't know if it's like they're always seen in black and white photos or what but like they, i always uh think of those two together uh second question is sleep schedule so our friends over at eight sleep have thermoregulated bed turn it hot turn it cold i sleep on an ice cold sleep like eight or nine hours Ooh. now game like literally the number one thing that i tell people you should go do is get this damn bed so that you can sleep cold and you get deeper uh, or you get more deep sleep so even if you still sleep the same let's say eight hours uh, rather than maybe four hours of deep sleep, you might get five or five and a half. And by extending the deep sleep, you actually feel more rested. So their whole goal is eventually instead of eight hours, you might be able to sleep six. But if it's all deep sleep, then you save time and got the same rest. What's your sleep schedule? <laughs> <laughs> if I'm being totally frank, I'm yeah. not probably sleeping as much as I should right now. Okay. Um, but like five to six hours. Five to six. Oh, that's bad. <laughs> all right. What time do you go to sleep? Uh, I, I, it varies between like 12 and one, and then I'll get up between like five and six. Listen, I'm Sleep telling more. you, <laughs> I used to literally, I, I said to somebody recently on the podcast, uh, when I first met my wife, she said to me like, Hey, you don't really sleep that much. Like, what's up with that? And I literally remember I said, wolves don't sleep. And she's like, what? And I was like, I don't know where that came from. But like, <laughs> like that was my mentality. It was just like, yo, I'll sleep when I'm dead. Then I started to sleep and I was like, oh, like you don't even understand the value of sleep until you start. Yeah. And I sound ridiculous. No, you don't this. sound ridiculous. And I think part of the problem. So my beat uh, at, at CNBC, it's it's crypto, but it's also cybersecurity. Okay. And so and I, I'm within my first few months on the new job. So uh, like sourcing up and, and closing that knowledge gap. Is, got it. OK. Yeah. After the first couple of After weeks, that. then sleep. <laughs> uh, third question is aliens. Are you a believer or non-believer? Yeah. I mean, it's Why? because it seems outrageous that we would be the only life form in the universe. Just because it's so big. I mean, yeah, but I mean, 
we're just, I feel like I'm going to, this is not going to be an eloquent answer, but we're like one small planet in this very yeah, like sure. big space. Like, I just don't understand how it's possible that there wouldn't be some other life form. I haven't said this in a while. So it might be a surprise to some people. When I was in high school, uh, there's nine planets. At one point, I think when I was in college, Pluto did, wasn't a planet and then became a planet again. Or so there's some controversy around Pluto. Only nine though. There's now like a thousand planets <laughs> and I don't know where the rest came from, <laughs> but there's a lot of work that's been done in space over the last like 20 years. And so uh, if there's a thousand planets and then there are more stars in the sky than grains of sand on earth, there's gotta be something out there. Okay. So you also are a believer. Oh, hardcore. Okay. Yeah. Good. But uh, I don't believe we'll be able to contact them during my lifetime because they're too far away. Mm -hmm. So like they're out there somewhere. Nice to meet you, whatever. Hundreds of years from now, but not probably not while we're alive. We'll see. What one question you have for me to finish up? Ooh. <laughs> um, what is the best piece that you've read in the last week or month? Oh, in the last week or month. Those aren't nearly as like that question is not nearly as good yeah, as the I can't, three you just asked I, I me. I can't say the best piece of media that I've consumed in the last week. It will definitely get me uh, in trouble. Um, I don't I, care if it's not CNBC. No, 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 no. <laughs> not in uh, trouble with me. No. Uh, yeah, I can't say that one. Um, I would say that I'll give you two people that okay. I read pretty regularly yeah. that I think are very interesting. Uh, and I'll caveat it with um, they're both independent thinkers. They write things in a very um, kind of a piercing way. So they get right at the truth of what they're saying, but they say it in a very entertaining and engaging way, which turns some people off. But uh, Matt Taibbi and uh, Mike Solana, both, they take things that happen in the world. Let's say, for example, uh, Mike might write about cancel culture. And he'll literally nail the topic. Like he'll be like, look, there's people who were powerless before. Now they feel like they have power. They go after people, they weaponize things, blah, blah, whatever. And he'll like nail it. And then some people read him and be like, oh my God, this guy, like he wrote 12 pages about like cancel culture. And like, they like freak out. But I like reading the people who write from an independent thinking standpoint, because what they end up doing is they end up stretching like the intellectual muscle. Mm -hmm. So like if you just read name your publication you just get that you're within some lane because that's what they're allowed to write that's what their editors want them to write right that's what uh their audience wants whatever so you're within that the more that you start to get outside of that you're literally just like stretching the intellectual muscle and sometimes like you know you might stretch it too far but oh wait, that was a little weird like you know let me come back within the the, the uh, you know uh within the boundaries of like of my thought process but like I just think more people could do better from doing that. And mm -hmm. so it's less about like one piece. It's just like those two people in particular, just off the top of my head, uh, Glenn Greenwald's been doing a fantastic job of just calling out nonsense. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, let me think of who else. I'd say those three have done a really good job. And then there's a, um, a woman, I'm going to forget her name. Uh, Plan's going to kill me. She <laughs> used to be the writer of all the profiles at GQ. And so she did The Rock and like a bunch of people. Uh, she's fantastic. Anytime she writes anything, I like almost stop everything and read it because uh, it's just like um, uh, learning from people and like their stories and all that. Uh, and she has like a really eloquent, eloquent, eloquent way of doing it. 
And uh, there's a story that she wrote. I'm pretty sure it's the same woman. She wrote Chris Hemsworth. Was he Captain America? I don't know. One of, one of those guys. I think there's brothers, mm-hmm. right? Kind of like my brothers. Like, ah, they're all like pomps. So whatever. <laughs> uh, and she like went out drinking with him. And then like slept at his house. Mm. And then wrote an article. And there's this whole thing. And you read it and you're like, that might be one of the best articles I've read in a while. <laughs> it's like Polina loves it as well. And it's just uh, the way that she writes is like very unique and it like really gets at, Hey, this is who this person is. So I don't know. Thank you for the recommendations. I'm definitely going to check them. Well, all it out. would help if I remembered her name. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I have enough to Google that and find her instantly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. G- <laughs> GQ uh, pro- basically does the profiles. Um, all right. Where can we send people? Uh, Twitter to find you yeah twitter um and then if you want to read my stuff i've got a bio page on cnbc all right so just go cnbc.com search your name and then it comes up or i guess google um and then anyone this is me this is not her saying this anyone who has ideas of stories for please go dm her be nice um but also i think that uh just introducing them Right. Mm-hmm. Because it might even be a story you're working on now, but in the future, uh, if you're looking to talk to somebody who does ABC, whatever they should, if they, if you know who they are, then you can reach out to them. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for having me. This is an intimidating chair to be sitting in. It's a $5 Home Depot chair. <laughs> in which many important people have, uh, sat across from you. So anyways, thanks.